Hare Krishna movement first sort of exploded onto the scene in the mid-1960s in America. What a satisfied customer. Um, one of the things that scholars noted, because scholars kind of got on it, in fact, there's a, there's a field that arose in the 60s called um, uh, New Religious Movements, which are not necessarily new, but they're new in America. So this is actually an academic field that arose with all these new things that were coming over. So one thing that scholars noted consistently is that um, one of the one of, something that was that was distinct about the Hare Krishna movement is that uh, it really was a an authentic tradition that that had very very firm roots going back into the history of Indian religions. It wasn't so to speak something that a guru had kind of come up with for a modern New Age audience. It really was something. In fact, there's a, uh, a conversation that uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada had with Allen Ginsberg, the poet Allen Ginsberg, who was one of his first followers, actually. And they used to travel around teaching people to chant Hare Krishna, Allen Ginsberg. So in a conversation they had in New York, uh, Allen Ginsberg was kind of saying that this is too orthodox. This is too, you know, it's too authentic. You have to Americanize it more. You have to Westernize it. And so, anyway, I wanted to trace the history of it because uh, it's kind of amazing, but what you see out here in the plaza, of course, this is the University of Florida, so you see it all the time. What you see out in the plaza is really something which, in one sense, is modern, but in another sense, actually goes all the way back to the earliest Vedic history, which is kind of remarkable. And so, uh, I wanted to quickly trace that history to show what the roots actually are. And then the second half of the class, well, actually, then, then we're having uh, teacher evaluations today, so, um, so I'll leave quietly ten minutes early. But um, So the first half of my portion of the class, I want to trace the history, and then the second half, I want to talk about the modern history about the Hare Krishna movement since it actually arrived in America in 19... Well, it was first incorporated in 1966 in New York, the founder... Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada arrived in 65 and then actually incorporated the movement in 66. But first, the history. Uh, it's really the history of Vaishnavism because it's very much a Vaishnava movement, a movement based on uh, devotion. It's a Bhakti movement, a Bhakti Vaishnava movement based on devotion to Vishnu, Krishna. And, um, well, I'll start with the Rig Veda. And this is a, uh, a bit of a rerun. We went over this early in the course, but it's worth repeating. Uh, in the Rig Veda, in the very first book, you have the statement, Tat Vishnu Paramang Padang Sadapashanti Surya, which is a very famous Rig Vedic verse, which is often cited in Hinduism, which means that the godly persons, the sages, are always looking toward that supreme abode, that supreme position of Vishnu. And I won't go over everything I went over before, but uh, the idea that Vishnu is a minor god in the Vedas and gradually became important and even had a whole religion built around him, uh, is not really the way ancient sages saw it. Because although there are more verses to, say, Indra or Agni or Soma in the Rig Veda, but according to the Bhagavad Gita, the way that Gita describes the Vedas, the Sanghitas, the original four Vedas, that they're works which are uh, primarily concerned with karma, karma conduct, performing rituals to get material rewards. And since the Vaishnava movement generally was aiming at a more transcendental objective, 
what Krishna says is that uh, the Vedas don't really talk so much about purely spiritual objectives, at least not the Vedic Samhitas. So the fact that Vishnu is not mentioned so much in the Vedas is something that one would, in a sense, expect. Just like, let's say, if you uh, if there's a book if there's a book on state government, you wouldn't hear so much about federal government because it's about state government. But still, the verses that are there about Vishnu uh, are very significant, and the, and this interpretation is not merely my own interpretation. It's actually the interpretation of the earliest ancient commentaries on the Rig Veda by the sages who, in a sense, owned the Rig Veda. The Vedas were given to different families, extended families of sages and Brahmins, and they, would be, they were the caretakers. They would memorize it, and they would comment on it and explain it. They would sort of conduct the rituals based on those Vedas. And so within the Rig Veda family, and the Rig Veda is the oldest Veda, within the Rig Veda family, the earliest commentary we have going thousands of years back is the Aitareya Brahmana, written within that community. And the very first verse, 1.1.1.Aitareya Brahmana, is Agnirvai Devanam Avamo Vishnu Paramasarantarena Saravanya Devata. That of all the gods, of all the deities, Agni is the lowest, because he's sort of visible down here on earth. Of all the deities, Agni is the lowest, Vishnu is the highest, and all the other gods are in between. Similarly, in the Yajurveda, the Taitariya Sanghita, which is one of the main branches of the Yajurveda, uh, which is the Veda which explains what the sacrifice means. That's the Veda which doesn't simply give the hymns, it explains what they mean, what the sacrifice ultimately is about. And there in the Taitariya Sanghita we find 5.5.1.4, Vishnu, Yajyo, that, that the sacrifice is Vishnu. The sacrifice actually is Vishnu. Somehow that Vishnu is present in the sacrifice. And that Agnyavamo Devathanam Vishnu Paramo. Same thing. Of all the gods, Vishnu is the highest. Yes? Um, you said that Agni is the lowest and Vishnu is the highest. And um, this is like my own interpretation of Agni. Um, and I, the way I understood it is that Agni is the lowest because he's kind of more in the lower realms. Um, and because he's closest to us, and so in a sense... Well, uh, well, well Agni is the intermediary, because we have direct contact with fire. We make the offerings into the fire, and then Agni transports those offerings to the gods. So in that sense, Agni is like the intermediary. Right, but then, but then using that same, like, correlation, then, then Vishnu would be the, the most far away. However, that... No, that interpretation is not really, I think corroborated by the statement that the sacrifice is Vishnu. Okay. So there's a transcendent sense in which the sacrifice okay. is Vishnu, and sacrifice actually becomes a name for Vishnu. Okay, so, so maybe Vishnu is the highest, meaning Vishnu is the transcendent. Yeah, but also, but, yeah, so, but, so, yeah. But, but, but again, if we see, well, I'll, I'll go on. So I, we don't really have time here to go into a whole discussion of that. But if we look at the Purusha Sukta prayer, which is also very important, the Purusha Sukta is like the first really powerfully philosophical statement, in a sense, in the Rig Veda, <coughs> which, which, uh, and interesting, the first verse of the, of the Purusha Sukta, which is taken to mean Vishnu, again, so the idea that Vishnu is the highest was taken way back in ancient times, not merely in a spatial sense, but in a sense of being the highest God, in the ordinary, simple, religious sense, and that's the way it was taken from the very beginning in ancient times, and so the Purusha Sukta hymn begins by saying, Sahasra Shir Shah Purusha, 
Sahasra, which you keep hearing, is thousand. So that form has thousands of heads. The Purusha has thousands of eyes, thousands of legs. And Subhumim Vishtato Vritwa. And it covers this earth. It covers the entire cosmos and this earth. So that idea of a Purusha, a cosmic person, a deity that covers the universe, and specifically beginning with Sahasra, thousand, and that Krishna actually echoes this in the Bhagavad Gita. Because by the time Krishna spoke the Bhagavad Gita, it was already a very common interpretation that the Purusha is Vishnu. And that's why the sacrifice is Vishnu. Because the original great sacrifice was of the Purusha, Vishnu. So therefore in the Bhagavad Gita, for example, in chapter 11, when Krishna is displaying his cosmic form, Krishna says, Pashyame Pārta-rūpāṇī See, Arjuna, my forms by the thousands. Again, this word thousand. Again, he says in that chapter, Arjuna says to Krishna, O thousand-armed one. So again, the Purusha Sutta in Rig Veda, that the, that the great cosmic Purusha has thousands of eyes, thousands of legs, uh, thousands of heads. And you have the same imagery in the Bhagavad Gita because the Purusha was understood or taken to be Vishnu. So you have this uh, monotheism, this Vaishnava monotheism going all the way back, really, if you trace it. And you see it clearly in the Yajurveda, that there's a highest god, there's a supreme god in, in the Aitareya Brahmana, interpreting the Rig Veda, there is a highest god that is Vishnu. So this goes all the way back. Now, uh, this, these ideas get, of course, very elaborately developed literarily and uh, philosophically in, for example, the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata, which talks about the same Vishnu actually coming to earth, actually coming to this world, intervening in human history. And the Bhagavad Gita, which appears within the Mahabharata, explains why Vishnu comes. You have Vishnu as Krishna explaining why he comes to this world in one of the most famous verses in all of Hinduism, as I said in a previous class, if you're speaking, let's say, lecturing to, to a group of Hindus, whenever you recite this verse, they all join in and finish it with you, which is, yada yada hi dharma bhavati bharata. Whenever uh, dharma is collapsing or declining in the world and adharma is rising, Krishna says, then I manifest myself. Uh, to save the, the virtuous, to remove the, well, the, you know, those who are the bad guys, and to reestablish Dharma. So that's Krishna's statement in that portion, chapter uh, 4 of the Bhagavad Gita, where he explains the avatar. And so here you have in the Mahabharata, this example of Krishna coming to the world. And in the Puranas, I actually give the Puranas a chance. Uh, in the Puranas also... <laughs> In a sense, the main point in the Puranas is the different avatars, the Lord coming down in different forms. The Ramayana, another form of Vishnu. So this theme of a Purusha, of a Supreme God, uh, and then coming to this world, really is the heart of the great epics of India. The Mahabharata, the Ramayana, and also in the Puranas, there are Upanishads which begin to talk about a, a Purushottam, a Supreme Person, a Supreme God. And uh, then also you have the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most powerful, and uh, not only the most powerful Vaishnava literature, but the, probably the most famous, important literature in all of Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita. 
So you can see that from the Rig Veda there is this continuous development of Vaishnavism, which actually in a sense becomes the center, the heart of religion in India. And then, then, uh, then in, let's say about, well, maybe about 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, I mean the chronology is a little flexible, you get a revival of bhakti movements because, I mean, religion always waxes and wanes. As I said, they always have their boom-bust cycles. You know, they go well for a while and then the corruption sets in or people kind of space out. And then there's a reform movement, a revival. So about a thousand years ago, you have these very powerful revival of bhakti movements, even earlier, actually. Uh, again, another wave, uh, apparently it begins in South India with the Alvars, Vaishnav Alvars in, in Southeast India, Tamil Nadu. And then you have, of course, the Nayanars, who are a Shaiva movement. The Shaivas have their bhakti movement. And one of these bhakti movements, actually the last one, according to Storian, the last, and, and in a sense the most powerful of all these bhakti revival movements, was the movement of Chaitanya, who we talked about. And Chaitanya is the founder of the Hare Krishna movement. Chaitanya. So uh, the first point I wanted to make is that... Uh, there is this continuous historical development. And so that's the sense in which uh, people out on the plaza of Las, de Las Americas, you know, people out there on the plaza chanting Hare Krishna in their own way are actually very firmly connected to this tradition going all the way back to proto-history of India, the proto-history of India. And uh, although it's not that the sages ever envisioned the Plaza of the Americas or the Hare Krishna lunch program, but they probably would stop by for a plate if they were here today. So, uh, that's sort of a brief rundown of the history. Any questions on that? On the history? Yes? Um, so, I'm to, from the Rig Veda, Krishna is only first mentioned in the Mahabharata. There's no mention of not so much, but Krishna himself addresses that actually in the Bhagavad Gita. Because in chapter 4, Krishna claims that I originally gave this spiritual knowledge uh, to Bhivaswan, the sun god, Bhivaswan Gautamana, but the knowledge was lost. So Krishna in the Gita claims that he is again teaching a knowledge which he taught eons before, but which has been lost. And he's again reviving it. So the fact that you don't find Krishna Vedic is something which Krishna himself addresses. Or he, he, he gives his own interpretation of that fact. And, and the two other terms which are very important regarding Chaitanya is... Um, you remember the word yuga? Right? You'll never forget the word yuga for the rest of your lives. The word yuga is these great ages. So the first age is Sati Yuga, the age of truth. The Chaita Yuga, the Dwapara Yuga, the Kali Yuga these cosmic seasons, planetary seasons that last for hundreds of thousands of years. So there's a common term, Yuga Avatar, which means that um, the Lord may descend with various purposes, but there's a specific type of descent, Avatar, incarnation, which establishes uh, what is called um, the Yuga Dharma, which is the the dharma, the sort of the prescribed or most effective or most appropriate dharma or spiritual process for a particular yuga, given the different historical situations, people's mental powers vary in different yugas, their 
spiritual abilities. And so there's, just as uh, Dharma in general, people's religiosity, piety, virtue, spiritual intuition, all these decline by quarter in every yuga, which we discussed. So the process kind of gets easier by quarter in every age. And so the idea is that in every age, a yuga avatar brings a yuga dharma so that people, to facilitate spiritual life in that particular age. So, according to the Bhagavad Purana, the Bhagavatam, which is, as we discussed, the most important Purana, and, uh, in a sense, the most philosophical Purana, there's a statement that in this age of Kali, the Yuga Avatar, the Avatar that comes in this age, will teach people uh, Sankirtana. Sankirtana is what you see in the plaza, basically. Chanting, the, the word kirtana means by glorifying or praising or chanting. In fact, it's kind of popular now, isn't it? Yoga circles, kirtana. And then the prefix sum, uh, which is Greek, sin, like together, like synthesis, uh, means chanting together, the congregational collective chanting. So uh, the rationale behind going out in public places and chanting Hare Krishna or other names of God or whatever, is that in the Bhagavad Purana, in this, in this Purana, it said that that in this particular age, uh, the, the Yuga Dharma, the Dharma for this age, is precisely that. It's also, I should mention, not considered a sectarian process. In a sense, you can chant any name of God. And it's, it's not considered, it's not dogmatic that you, you have to chant this name as opposed to that name. But in general, that Sankirtana, which is mentioned in the Puranas, uh, is considered to be there the Yuga Dharma. And the Yuga Avatar, the, uh, the Avatar that brought this Yuga Dharma, is considered to be Chaitanya. And so there are various verses, just like, uh, this is called proof texting. It's like after Jesus came, his followers uh, sort of ransacked the Old Testament to find verses that somehow prophesied or predicted or pre-described his activities, his mission in this world. In fact, the, um, that was the basic thrust of the, in a sense, of the, uh, the early preaching of the Jesus movement, is this type of proof text and try to explain or prove or convince people that uh, Jesus really was the guy mentioned in the older book. And so the same kind of proof texting goes on actually in the Vaishnava community. And so various verses are cited, like the one I mentioned, to show that actually Chaitanya is in fact the Yuga Avatar, and this is Yuga Dharma. Now, uh, within this, and as I explained earlier, this is the Godia Vaishnava tradition, Godia, from the word Goda, is uh, East India, or specifically Bengal. Uh, the old name for it is Godadesh, the land of Goda. And uh, so this is called Godia Vaishnavism because Chaitanya was from uh, Navadvip which is, uh, oh, I don't know, how many miles, 80, 90 miles. It takes like several hours on the roads there because <laughs> West Bengal had a, has had a com communist government for a very long time and it's probably the least developed state in India. But um, it's had probably the worst state government in India for many years. And anyway, it's about 80, 80, 90 miles north of Calcutta is Navadwi, where Chaitanya was born. Therefore, it's called Gaudiya Vaishnavism. There is a philosophical argument as to why the chanting is effective. And again, not as a sectarian process, but in general, chanting the names of God. And uh, 
the basic argument is that because God is absolute, the Brahman, the absolute truth, Parang Satyam, therefore, uh, spiritually, there's no difference between God and the name of God. So that when you chant the name of God, you're not simply referring to something or someone, or, and, and not merely addressing someone, but you are actually directly in contact with God in his complete existence. So that the name of God is a full avatar. In fact, that term is used. In Sanskrit, uh, the word nama means name, which you'd never guess it, but it's cognate with the English word. And so there's the, there's the term nama avatar. The descent of the Lord or the incarnation of the Lord as the name. Now, one thing I should mention very quickly is that this same idea is not exclusive to Vaishnavism, but is found practically in all world religions. For example, take the Old Testament. If you... Um, oh my God, we have less time today. So if you take, for example, um, the Old Testament. In the episode of the Old Testament where uh, the first temple is going to be built in Jerusalem, and that includes, for example, David, King David, getting the inspiration to build a temple. And then uh, his thinking about what the temple will be, his unsuccessful efforts to build the temple because of his sin in basically getting some guy killed so he could marry the guy's wife, which is, you know, not really ethical. So he couldn't build the temple himself, but his son Solomon built the temple. So the Old Testament description of the grand opening of the temple, and then, you know, remembering, yeah, the good old days when we had the grand opening. In other words, in all the descriptions of the temple, planning, executing, grand opening, thinking back about it, one point that comes out again and again and again is that this first temple in Jerusalem is actually a temple to the name of God. It's actually a temple to the name of God, and and that as God lives... As God lives in heaven, so God lives through his name. God lives in the temple. It's actually a temple to the name of God. And uh, in, in many other traditions, in, in for example, in the Lotus Sutra, and in different forms of Buddhism, there's a notion that the name is the thing itself. There is a even a, a dialogue written by Plato in which he wonders if a particular Greek word has a special relationship with the object it denotes. And so this, I think back to the term Shabda Brahma, all these different philosophies of language, of sacred language, where you can have, uh, oops, there's a very common term, which I'm sure we've discussed. Shabda means sound, or it means a word. This is the word for word. And Shabda Brahma means the absolute, the absolute in the form of sound, in the form of a word. So, uh, in opposition to the philosophies that you have to transcend language, that language is ultimately limited, you have this very powerful linguistic philosophy that ultimately the truth can be present as sound. And ultimately the name of God is God. It's actually an avatar. It's a form of God in this world. And so by chanting the name of God, remembering the name, whatever, uh, you are actually in a state of yoga. Because the word yoga means to link, to connect. So by thinking of the name of God, chanting the name of God, hearing the name of God, you immediately enter into a state of yoga. You're actually connected to God. And it's by that association, by direct contact with God through the name, uh, the soul becomes purified. The secret cleansing agent 
is God. You know, in America, detergents always have secret cleansing agents that always begin with the letter X. So, the idea is that in the name of God, uh, the secret cleansing agent is God himself. The God, in, in fact, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita addresses Krishna as Pavitam uh, Parama, the supreme purifier. And so that supreme purifier, manifesting as a name, purifies the soul. That's why, uh, that, that's the understanding with which, or the, um, the belief with which, people go out in public places and chant names of God, such as Hare Krishna. Another thing is that um, regarding the word Hare, it's taken by the tradition to be the uh, feminine vocative. Sanskrit is a gendered language like Spanish, you know, like amiga, amigo. And so you have the feminine word hara, which in the uh, vocative case is dressing. It's a, it's a uh, what do you call that? Declined. There's a inflected language. Inflected. So hara is actually addressed the feminine aspect of the absolute truth. The, the idea here is the absolute truth is both masculine and feminine. And it would be a dull world indeed if it was only one gender. So... And we've, we've discussed this before, but that is the idea of Chaitanya, that ultimately the absolute truth is a couple, actually. It's a divine couple. And, and because in the absolute there's masculine and feminine, we as parts of God naturally have that same tendency, in a sense, to complete ourselves to the combination of masculine and feminine. And it actually is, is a, a wholeness which exists originally in God. So that's something, now, philosophically, we talked about Vedanta a lot. So, the Hare Krishna movement also has its own Vedanta philosopher. There's a, um, there's one gentleman named Baladev, Vidyabhushana, uh, who was one of the great Vedantists. And so they're in this Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, which we now know today as the Hare Krishna movement, there's also a Vedanta uh, development. Couldn't think of a good word. There's also this Vedanta, so that the Vedanta position of Chaitanya and of, of this uh, tradition is the Veda-Veda, which we've talked about so much. I've written that so many times. Veda-Veda, difference and non-difference. So, uh, what's interesting about the Hare Krishna movement is that um, its most visible manifestation is obvious, I, you know, chanting Hare Krishna out of public places, but actually, if you say the tradition, it, it has this very sophisticated philosophical background. And so sometimes it's uh, misunderstood, perhaps because of the way they present themselves, but sometimes it's misunderstood to be sort of mostly sentiment, passion, emotion. I think the emotion is there. Uh, but there's also very sophisticated philosophy. Rupa, Rupa Goswami, whom we discussed with the Rasa theory, the five primary types of relationships with God, seven secondary relationships, that whole sophisticated theology of emotions and relationships with God. Uh, Rupa is a direct disciple of Chaitanya. And so within this line you have all these um, impressive theologians. And Baladev, the Vedantist, who's probably the most famous Vedantist among the Gaudiya Vaishnavas. The Gaudiya Vaishnavas who taught the Veda, Veda doctrine. The Gaudiya Vaishnavas, by the way, also accept Ramanuja as uh, sort of like you could say a spiritual cousin. And uh, in general, it's connected to the Vaishnava movement. They, for example, accept the Ramayana, Mahabharata. Practically, their chief text is the Bhagavad Gita. 
or the Bhagavad Purana. So it's very much, it's very deeply embedded within this ancient Vaishnava tradition. Which Allen Ginsberg thought it was too embedded. Anyway, so there's no questions on that. Now this class ends at 35. Oh my God. Okay. 10 minutes to go through all the uh, details of the modern Hare Krishna movement. So, uh, basically, Prabhupada, Bhaktivedanta Swami, he's called Prabhupada, by his followers, <coughs> came to America on a cargo ship, which is not necessarily the most uh, elegant way to come to America, but that's all he could afford. He actually didn't have any money. He, uh, he had renounced the world. He was working as a sannyasi translating books, and, when he want, he, and somehow he was, his guru had ordered him to preach in English, to teach this knowledge in English, which was very revolutionary because it had never really been taught outside of India. So his teacher noticed that he was an educated person, he was a college graduate, and asked him to teach in English. So he decided that since America was the leading country in the world, that, because previously, whenever people in India wanted to make an impression on the West, they always went to London because... India had this very old relationship with England, obviously. And so the city was London. And if you want to, you know, make it big in the West, you go to London. So Prabhupada's really had a different idea, I'll go to America. Because, you know, times have changed. America is now the leading country. But all, so he, he went to see this Sumati Murarji, this uh, very rich lady, who owned this large steamship line in India, in Bombay, Mumbai. And he asked her for a free ticket. So he went in there as a sadhu, as a sannyasi, and at first she wouldn't give him a ticket because she feared for his health. Because at that time he was 69 years old. And she said, you won't survive the trip. But he kept going. He kind of, you know, played this card of the sannyasi thing. And in India they take it very seriously. And so he sort of sat around her office until she finally had to give him a ticket. <laughs> he did have a heart attack on the boat coming over. So her fears were not you know, ill-founded, he somehow survived, he came to New York, he actually came to Butler, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, as Butler goes, so goes the world. So, <laughs> because his sponsor, the person that sponsored him for a visa, was the son of one of his friends in India who lived in Butler, Pennsylvania. So, that was, so he went to Butler, he figured out pretty soon that I don't think this is necessarily the most influential city in America. So he went to New York City. <laughs> And somehow or other, he, he had very little money, and he, I think he stayed in the YMCA at first, actually. And uh, we're all, you know, future religious leaders, first day, New York YMCA. And then uh, he got, he just sort of, I don't want to say bummed around, but he, somehow he found little places to stay here and there. He attracted a few followers. They began to help him. And that was 1960. Now we're sort of into early 66. The counterculture movement is just starting to happen. And he starts to attract all these people who are interested in India. They get a little storefront in the lower east side of New York, 26th 2nd Avenue. He starts doing kirtan, saying Hare Krishna, speaking for the Bhagavad Gita, and people start to come. Hundreds of people start coming. And the Hare Krishna movement starts. And, uh, of course, Allen Ginsberg comes, and then it starts to spread. He's sitting, then he sent some of his early followers to San Francisco, because the word was in New York, and you know, they you know, New York, they, they, they realized that um, something was happening in San Francisco, like something really amazing is happening. So some of them went out to San Francisco, and they rented a little storefront in San Francisco, and then there was a band across the street that liked them, and so they bought them a, a big 
stove, actually, so they could cook and feed people. So they were feeding people in the Haight-Ashbury. And the, um, that was the hippie epicenter. And so the band that bought them their first stove was the Grateful Dead. So it's interesting. And then, um, so then a few of them went to London, because London was happening. So they went to London, then they ran into the Beatles. And uh, then the Beatles started to help them. And then, uh, actually, George Harrison got one of his friends to donate some money to build a little altar you know, in, in the first little temple in, on Soho Street in London. So the guy who gave the first little donation to build an altar in London was Mick Jagger. <laughs> and then they, um, then they met a, they um, made a record. George Harrison actually joined them, but I mean he didn't, you know, move into their ashram. But he, but he, so George Harrison thought, I don't want to completely destroy my career, but I want to help these people. So um, he actually helped them make a record. So George Harrison, his friends, uh, and Mick Jagger helped, and Paul McCartney, and John Lennon, they all helped. I mean, they all kind of pitched in. There was a singer famous back then named Donovan, and uh, Billy Preston. So basically all these, like, famous musicians, they all came by and, you know, played some instrument or helped out, and George produced it. He played the bass guitar, I think lead guitar and produced it. So they made this, what was called Radha Krishna Temple album, and it became, and then the Hare Krishna cut became number one all over Europe. It actually became the number one tops of the pops all over Europe. And so you had these Hare Krishna monks traveling all around Europe doing like these, you know, rock and roll shows and sort of like, you know, the, uh, I guess, German version of American Bandstand or whatever. And so, anyway, it, it started to grow. That, that was in the early 60s, not early 60s, Actually, the late 60s, it started, to, and then it just started to spread all around the world as a youth movement. Then, uh, then what happened? In the 70s, uh, meanwhile, Prabhupada was translating the Bhagavad Purana, this this important li- literature, of the Bhagavad Purana. He had to translate it, and they kind of shifted <coughs> another gear. They started to distribute these books. They became uh, eternally notorious for airport distribution. And, uh, oh, by the way, I wanted you guys to mention, for those of you who like rock and roll history, they did this uh, big benefit concert. Actually, they had all the bands, the leading San Francisco bands at the time. At that time, there was sort of a San Francisco sound that emerged. And uh, sort of psychedelic sounds, Jefferson Airplane, and uh, who else wrote this? Uh, yeah, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, all those different bands. They put on a big benefit concert, actually, for Prabhupada, Bhaktivedanta Swami, to get their temple going. So anyway, uh, then Prabhupada passed away in 1977, and you get into the issue which sociologists call the routinization of charisma, which is a big issue in any, you know that Max Weber, the idea that you have a charismatic leader, he or she keeps something going, whether it's a Jesus or Mohammed or this or that, in this case, Bhaktivedanta Swami, a charismatic leader creates this movement, gathers a community, that this charismatic leader is the authority, that person passes away, and almost always there's not another equally charismatic leader. And so, in order to survive, this community has to somehow or other rationalize its charisma. They have to take the authority, the authority which was somehow emanating from that leader, and transform it into a rational administrative structure so that the thing can actually go on and survive. And a lot of times it doesn't work. I mean, there are many movements that don't make that curve. 
And it's kind of like takeoff and landing. It's the most dangerous time of a historical flight. And so uh, the process of the routinization of charisma was, was, you know, a bumpy road for the Hare Krishna movement, but they made it and actually continued to grow. And then, what else do I want to say? Uh, then you have, so, so you have this, two things happened in America and also in Western Europe, which kind of sent the Hare Krishna movement down another path. One is that uh, the hippie movement ended. Not only the hippie movement, but that whole counterculture thing, as you may have noticed, you are growing up in a different time. So that whole thing ended. And back then, it was like a big thing among young people to join an ashram, to take up some type of utopian lifestyle, to go back to nature. It was a very popular thing. People were dropping out and joining idealistic communities, which doesn't happen that much nowadays. And so, not only the Hare Krishna movement, but every movement, every kind of new religious movement, new in the sense of new in America, that depended on that type of social dynamic, uh, it just stopped happening. In fact, back in the, say, 50s and 60s, or even earlier, the Catholic Church and other Christian churches used to send ministers out to other countries, the third world countries, to spread their faith. Then, by the 80s and 90s, uh, third world countries had to send priests to America to keep churches open. And uh, seminaries have struggled to find people that wanted to be priests. So you have a situation where, let's say, African countries, South American countries, even India, they start sending priests to America, which reversed the previous trend. So that was a general social dynamic which, which affected every, even mainstream religious movement, and certainly affected the Hare Krishna movement. At the same time, you have this massive Indian immigration into America. They even made it onto the Simpsons. And so you have, you have this Indian immigration, and uh, in large numbers, the Indians sort of embraced the Hare Krishna movement precisely because, as I said at the beginning, it was very authentic, very exotic perhaps for the West, but for Indians, totally recognizable, totally recognizable, traditional, orthodox. And so, therefore, it was very easy uh, to attract Indian people precisely because it was traditional and authentic. And so the economic base shifted. And suddenly, instead of, you know, all kinds of idealistic, utopian young people rushing into the ashrams and going back out to sell things, suddenly the economic base became a Hindu congregation in many cases. And when your economic base changes, it's like, you know, you kind of change the way you do things a little bit because you have to satisfy the people that are keeping the lights on. I don't mean to say the Hare Krishna movement is simply mercantile, uh, but naturally, when you're getting a tremendous support from a certain community, it didn't change the basic principles, it didn't change the basic practices, but the movement became, in, in, at least in some places, like Chicago, Houston, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, and so on, there are certain places where, uh, for example, the ceremonies would be done in a way that were authentic and didn't really compromise the basic principles, but would be more pleasing to or more comfortable for a Hindu congregation. So when that happened, uh, that actually kind of, it makes it less comfortable for Western people who have a different culture. And so that became an issue, not in Gainesville actually, not in Gainesville, but in other places, especially big cities with large Hindu populations. So that's one social dynamic which took place. Oh my God, it's the last thing you're going to hear about. And today, 
what is the Hare Krishna movement today is, um, I mean, sociologically it's very healthy, it, it, it's still growing, and it's sort of, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll leave so you can all uh, evaluate me, and that is that um, it, it brings up one powerful dynamic going on now is to what extent is the essence of the religion in the external things, dressing in certain kind of clothes, you know, what are called dhotis or kurtas or saris, wearing Indian dress, or playing Indian musical instruments. To what extent is it a transcendental spiritual culture? To what extent is it spiritually necessary to preserve a South Asian ethnic vehicle for that? And that's a debate, actually a, sort of a, a very strong debate going on within the Hare Krishna movement, which to some extent I think will determine where it goes in the future.